For my money, there are two definitions of rock and roll. A narrow definition, often defined by the popular music of the 1950s, and a second definition, the quote-unquote rock and roll attitude. An attitude that was to outlive the narrow definition and outlive the narrow confines of a musical genre, which really only lasted at its peak from 1955 to the year after Elvis left the army and the day the music died, 1958. But to talk about the second definition of a rock and roll attitude, it is crucial to address the first. The first part of the podcast will be dealing with an overview of rock and roll and a history of its origins. The second half will deal with its legacy. Rock and roll was a music genre born out of a new generation of post-Second World War teenagers and young adults. To this generation, the hardships of the Depression and the Second World War was either a piece of history or a distant childhood memory. The 1950s in America is viewed today as the height of American power and American self-image, with wealth distributed, unlike today, heavily towards the young. Of course, with most myths, it contains a half-truth, but not the entire picture. The white youth of America had an unparalleled degree of disposable income, with, as the myth goes, high-paying entry-level jobs, perfect nuclear families, with a low cost of living, so much so that a single breadwinner could pay for the whole family's lifestyle. Though, of course, that might have been true for some families, it was not true for all, especially if you were black. But the stultifying atmosphere that surrounded the post-war era made these teenagers and young adults of the early and mid-1950s would make them do what any teenager should want to do, rebel. The origins of rock and roll are perhaps owed to the two things which are most quintessential in American history, technological and industrial advancement and casual racism. The 1930s and 1940s were filled with black American forms of music, to which large parts of white America paid little attention. Jazz, swing, blues, gospel, all contained elements of what would later be called rock and roll. Jazz bands would use saxophones, keyboards, bass guitars, electric guitars and drums. But these large ensembles of musicians would, due to the lack of available men to play as the Second World War started, became smaller and smaller over time. Then, even when the Second World War ended, club owners realised there was little need to pay for a dozen or more musicians, when they could hire five musicians and get exactly the same response from the paying public. So, 
in the late 40s and early 50s, a type of blues hit America called the Jump Blues. Located mostly in the Midwestern and Western coast of the United States, it sowed the seeds of rock and roll. It featured many facets of what would later be defined as rock and roll. The Jump Blues was known for its guitar riffs, heavy beats and shouted lyrics, which contained many of the elements that would make the youth of the day go wild. Indeed, Chuck Berry, a Chicago native, made his early career from the Jump Blues, and by transposing the Jump Blues piano to the electric guitar, he made his Jump Blues focus on the electric guitar more than the piano. As this was happening, advancements in technology, such as the electric guitar, the amplifier, the microphone, the 45 record, and the transistor radio, all made the spread of music possible. It didn't take long for record executives and radio heads to realise it wasn't just black people listening to this new and more aggressive style of music. The new post-war generation, far less concerned with race than their predecessors, had no qualms in listening to quote-unquote black music. With both young black and white Americans eager to get away from their parents who were fixed to their new television sets, they wanted something rebellious. Radio stations and new record labels such as Atlantic Records were beginning to cater to this new and changing taste. One of these new record labels, in particular, Sun Records, would be the one to make more impact than any other. The first definitive rock and roll record as a separate entity from the Jump Blues is debated amongst both fans and scholars but I'm putting my hat in with Rocket 88. Credited by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, but actually recorded by Ike Turner, noted wife beater and future husband to Tina, and his King of Rhythm band. The song, even to listen to it now, sounds modern, dangerous and wild. Listen to a country song or a folk song of the time, and it sounds of its time. But Rocket 88 sounds like a modern record. Building on the jump blues and swing music, the song sets itself apart by a rawer sound than any before it. The aggressive piano sound, which Little Richard would copy almost exactly for Good Golly Miss Molly, the rhythm and bounce in the vocal performance is more akin to later works by Chuck Berry than that of earlier blues or swing. And although the vocals don't have the same edge as an Elvis or Little Richard, the guitar line is far ahead of its time, with a clearly distorted guitar sound, which would take years to be fully imitated. It created a sound that decades of rock guitarists would try and copy. The lyrics, like almost every single rock and roll song that would come after it, is about women, booze and cars. But the lyrics, almost undecipherable, make it sound like a rock song, 
rather than just a blues song. Compare Rocket 88 to the perfect imitation of a Frank Sinatra record and you can hear the difference. To be the first rock and roll record, the song would also have to be popular. It's no point being the velvet underground of early rock and roll, where it takes 25 years for people to fully understand what you were doing. The song, however, was the third biggest rhythm and blues song of 1951, clearly stamping itself on the future of rock and roll. Furthermore, the song was recorded by Sam Phillips, one of the most important figures of early rock and roll, and somebody we'll get back to in just a moment. Perhaps the second origin song of rock and roll is Rocker on the Clock by Bill Haley. The song was originally released in 1954, but was only a modest success. When it was used in the film Blackboard Jungle to be the song reflecting what the quote-unquote youth of the time were listening to, the song and the whole rock and roll genre took off. For many normal white middle-class Americans who weren't overly rebellious enough to attend black clubs or listen to rebellious radio stations, it was this song that was their first introduction to rock and roll. The sheer popularity of the song stunned people of the time, even the band themselves. Marshall Little of the Comets, Bill Haley's backing band, later said, quote, We were travelling on the New York Thruway from Buffalo to Boston to do a television show. I turned the radio on and Rock Around the Clock was playing. This was a new Cadillac that Bill had just bought. It had one of those scalectric dials where you just push the bar and it goes to the next station. I pushed the bar and it was playing again on another radio station. I pushed the bar again and it was playing again. At one given moment, it was playing five times on the dial. Within five minutes, I must have heard it a dozen times. I said, quote, this is a monster hit, close quotes. When you hear a song that many times on many different radio stations, you know damn well it was a monster hit, close quotes. Perhaps it was the sheer simplicity of the song that made it catch on, or the fact it was actually a white man who had recorded it, rather than almost every other early rock and roll song, which were recorded by black men. But Bill Haley's success was not to last. A balding 30-year-old man with almost no sex appeal can record a great song. But for the youth of America, he was never going to be an idol. If sex, drugs and rock and roll was to mean anything, it was not going to be Bill Haley carrying a flag. A young man by the name of Elvis Presley had several times come into the studio of Sam Phillips's Sun Records. Phillips 
who had recorded Rocket 88, was known as something of a local impresario. And it's not overly suspicious to think Presley was looking to be discovered by Phillips. Nothing, however, came about during the couple of sessions Presley recorded, paying out of his own pocket. The receptionist, Marion Keisker, did in fact take his name down and note that Presley was a good ballad singer. Sam Phillips, meanwhile, was looking for a white man to sing, as he called it, the Negro song, and to find somebody who had the Negro sound. So remembering the young man, Phillips invited Presley into the studio to record a song called Without You. The recording never worked out, but Phillips was impressed enough to ask Presley to record as many songs as he could, and thinking he heard something that could be worked on in Presley's voice, he invited two local musicians to record with Presley, Scotty Moore and Bill Black. What followed would go down in rock and roll law. The session held on the 5th of July 1954 was Presley, Moore and Black going into the studio and beginning to record. The subsequent recordings did not work out. About to go home, Presley picked up his child-sized guitar and, in the words of Scotty Moore, quote-unquote, started acting like the fool. The two musicians followed suit. Phillips rushed back into his booth and instructed the trio to play the song again, so he could record it. It was the sound Phillips had been looking for. A cover of the 1946 song, That's Alright Mama. Three days later, the song would be played over the radio, and listeners were eager to find out who had recorded the song, assuming it was a black man. So the interviewer asked what school Presley had attended, in a roundabout way of determining his colour. The song would be played constantly over the next couple of hours, as the audience had never heard anything like this song before, especially one recorded by a white man. Only two weeks later, and Presley was performing with Scotty Moore and Bill Black. Due to the strong rhythm of the material, and being nervous at performing for the first time, Presley began to move his hips and legs as he performed. Many of the women in the audience started to scream. As Scotty Moore said, quote, During the instrumental parts, he would back off from the mic and be playing and shaking, and the crowd would just go wild. His movement was a natural thing, but he was also very conscious of what got a reaction. He'd do something one time, and then he would try and expand on it real quick. Close quotes. The trio continued to perform and record and several months later, Presley was gaining national attention. Throughout 1955, Presley continued to record and perform, leading in the winter of 1955, leaving Sun Records and joining RCA Victor. His first single, and his first major nationwide hit, Heartbreak Hotel, would then be recorded. Released on his first album, 
the eponymous Elvis Presley, it would contain his version of Blue Suede Shoes. In the promotion of the album, he would appear on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time. In just over a year, Elvis Presley went from a normal person to the most famous entertainer in America and one of the most famous people on earth. Following the success of Presley, many white artists, especially from the South, would blend black music and a black sound, leading to the genre being called rockabilly, a mix of rock and roll and hillbilly music. Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis would all follow Presley in this bold new world. The release of Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash, Blue Sway Shoes by Perkins and Presley's Heartbreak Hotel would cement Rockabilly's number one status in America. Black acts like Little Richard and Chuck Berry continued to prosper in this period and did have some crossover success into white audiences, though perhaps not as much as they deserved or would have had had they been white. This new music spread out all over the world, and in particular to the United Kingdom, where the music was not for the prosperous middle-class adolescents like in the United States, but for the working classes which was embodied in the mods and rockers. The success in American rock and roll led to British record companies doing what companies do when they find themselves way behind and in need of catching up. They copy. The British record companies copied much of American music, sometimes note for note. The success of Rock Around the Clock, Elvis, Buddy Holly, and many of the black acts like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, and even older blues artists like Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson, forgotten in their own country, led a generation of Brits to try and emulate their musical heroes. The first and most famous attempt would be the skiffle craze of the 1950s in Liverpool, where bands like the Quarrymen, which contained Paul McCartney and John Lennon, would try and be the next Elvis or Buddy. With the dawn of the British invasion, bands such as the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Animals and the Who would dominate America. Mixing rock and roll, blues and beat music, the rock and roll of the 1950s would die out, but the social impact and the broad definition of rock and roll would live on. When discussing the legacy of rock and roll, it would be easy, and there are many people who have, simply discussed the legacy of rock and roll on subsequent generations of musicians. Bands from The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Sex Pistols and Nirvana have looked back upon this specific period of music and tried to recreate it with their own twist and for their own generation. Taking the DIY nature and simplistic nature of rock and roll and trying to extrapolate what they thought was its core meaning. Whether that was the political message of the music in the case of the Sex Pistols or to be the voice of a disenfranchised generation in the case of Nirvana. 
but it's the social impact of rock and roll that remains unparalleled in influencing lifestyle, fashion, attitude, and the political engagement of the youth in ways in which no other youth culture or subculture has ever done. The most superficial change is in fashion. The tattoos, leather jackets, torn out jeans, and the so-called rebellious look was pioneered first by rock stars. The growth of drugs and drug culture is in part due to their influence in rock and roll. And the increasing view many now have of drugs that is simply something there to be experimented with. Whether this be marijuana or LSD, it was often musicians who first introduced these to the youth and the general masses. But in my opinion, the most important legacy of rock and roll was the rebellious attitude it imbued a whole generation. The 1960s especially, the decade after the first explosion of rock and roll, was one of massive social change all over the world. The protests against American involvement in the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution, the events of May 1968 in France were all events that came out of the baby boomer generation. And all this was down to new confidence and belief that they were right about the world. And the soundtrack to this movement was based from rock and roll. The first effect of social change caused by rock and roll was the integration of black and white America. The 1950s black artists weren't playing racially charged songs, but playing fast aggressive music that both whites and blacks could dance to. The name of rock and roll caught on because it made no comment about race. Invented in 1951 by a disc jockey called Alan Freed, it was unlike any style of genre before because there was no racial connotations. Most pre-war black music was simply labelled as race music. Rock and roll was a catch-all term. The interracial audiences for rock and roll, in a time where most Americans lived in homogenous, segregated societies, and where the ideal family was white, middle-class, and living in the suburbs, brought many white, middle-class Americans into contact with black culture, black society, and for some perhaps, black people for the first time. At a time when segregation was rife, there are many stories of white Americans sneaking into black nightclubs to listen to their music, even with authorities cautioning them not to. As Glenn Alshuler, in his book, All Shook Up, How Rock and Roll Changed America says, Quote, With white families huddled around the television in the early 1950s, African Americans and white teenagers were listening to the radio. Close quotes. While of course the credit for the civil rights movement goes to people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and the thousands of activists who boycotted, protested and demonstrated against white rule, they were joined, too, by many whites to whom segregation seemed ridiculous. Many of these will have grown up on rock and roll.
The term rock and roll itself may have actually come from an old black American slang term for sex. And it was here where the first loosenings of sexual mores came, largely on the dance floor where rock and roll was played. The traditional form of dancing in the early part of the 1950s was the man leading the woman. But Chubby Checker told a generation how to twist and women began to gyrate their hips and dance alone. Clearly Western civilization was about to fall. The loosening of previous tight morals on sexual behaviour is in no doubt in part due to rock and roll. But for me, the longest lasting legacy of rock and roll is in its rebellious nature. For generations, people had revolted and rebelled and protested, but the divide had been economic. Between artisans and aristocrats, working and middle class, middle class and upper class. But rock and roll created the divide between young and old. The Victorian morals of children should be seen and not heard were smashed by rock and roll. All of which would reach ahead in the Vietnam War. Set against the backdrop of Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Dylan and The Doors, the ethos of adolescence rebellion was in full swing. The pitching of rock against the political establishment, the view of thousands of students and young adults against the Vietnam War as Hendrix and Lennon led the way. The constant and never-ending resentment of young Americans being sent off halfway around the world for a war that could never be won against an enemy that could never be defeated. Rock music was a conduit in which people could express their antithesis. There had been nothing like rock and roll in American history. If the political establishment decided that thousands of young men should be sent to war, they would be sent to war. No complaining and no argument. They were doing their duty as soldiers, but now everything had changed. Rock and roll was about giving a voice to a new generation. A generation which had never experienced the horror of the Second World War. It grew out of a need to express an individual identity for a country created to express identity, but which had fallen into a strict definition of repressive normality. It led to a generation able to rebel against their parents who in many ways, were very different to them. As they grew of age, so did their ideals. From simply wishing to dance to the Negro sound, to helping break down racial barriers, to sexual liberation and protesting an unjust war, rock and roll has inspired many. And that's why rock and roll is listed at number 100 of my greatest ever inventions. Thank you.